Ever snore so loud it registered as an earthquake or you woke up with a throat as dry as the Sahara Desert and a headache that could stop a locomotive? Well, I've had all of these because I have sleep apnea. Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. Yep, I wear a machine plugged into a wall attached to a hose every night. Sound Sleep Medical changed all of this for me, and they can do that for you. They specialize in providing oral appliance therapy for individuals suffering from sleep disorders. In many cases, oral appliances have proven to be as effective as CPAP machines in treating sleep apnea. The lack of sleep is a serious health risk and has been linked to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and even depression. The oral appliance I got from Sound Sleep Medical has freed me from a hose. I can go anywhere, and I've never slept better. Call Sound Sleep Medical today. Seriously, for a limited time, the first 25 people that call get a free consultation worth 200 bucks. Call 801-783-5451. It's 801-783-5451. Hello, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And this is Dinner Table Politics. And Abby, there's one question that's on everybody's mind. What's the one question on your mind? Why did Cardi B try and fight Nicki Minaj? And that's what we're going to focus on on today's Yes, this is all I ever wanted. No, I don't even know what that is. Who's Cardi B? She's a rapper. They're both the two most prolific female rappers in the game right now. And they tried to fight each other. Okay. At a fashion week party in New York. All right. I'm just glad that the people out there can't see your face after I asked you that question because you were not happy with me. No, the question I'm thinking of in a political context is who did it? Who wrote the anonymous op-ed that ran in the New York Times this last week? Have you read the op-ed? Yeah. Who do you think wrote it? Um... A staff. I, I I didn't. I don't know. That wasn't my first thought. Like when I after I read it, I wasn't like, oh, who did it? I was more like, oh, that's weird that someone would do this. So so that was your first thought was this is just so strange that somebody would do this. Yeah, it's just like I feel like we're living in like a simulation. Like all this weird <laughs> stuff just keeps happening, and we kind of just accept it and move on. Well, you know, but I that, think I think we're like a Sims game that is glitching right now. That actually came up this last week too, because Tesla shares dropped by nine percent. When Elon Musk went on a podcast. Yeah, I know. I watched it. Did you watch the whole podcast? You watched yeah, him light I, up his I listened and... to that podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh, okay. And so is that why you think we're living in a simulation is because Elon Musk No, I don't you? think that's why. I just, no, I just, I don't know. The world is a weird place. The world is a weird place. Well, the world was a weird place even before this op-ed came out because I was listening to Bob Woodward who was giving, uh, who, who called up President Trump and got permission from President Trump to record the phone call and explain to him that he was about to release his book and to talk about how disappointed he was that President Trump wasn't willing to comment on the record. And then President Trump kept saying, well, you never called me. And he said, well, I talked to Lindsey Graham and he mentioned it to you. Oh, yeah, but that was just for a little bit. I mean, very clearly, President Trump wasn't willing to talk to Bob Woodward. But Bob Woodward's reputation as a journalist is impeccable. Woodward and Bernstein were the ones who, who broke uh, Watergate, and they were the ones who were responsible for um, All the President's Men, which features an appearance by your grandfather. Did you know? Have you ever seen All the President's Men? Nope. Do you know the story of All the President's Men? Nope. All the President's Men is the story of Watergate, and the first person that Robert Redford calls in All the President's Men is Bob Bennett. 
which I always thought was kind of fun. And your grandmother was really upset about it because their home phone number is on the screen for a split second. This is the days before they put 555 before the phone number. And you could see the Bennett home phone number in the movie. So if you want to find out what our phone number was when I was growing up, you can just go watch the movie. Are you excited? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you don't seem that excited. Well, Bob Woodward was uh, t- talking about all of the things, that the excerpts from his book, where he describes uh, che- Trump top officials taking papers off of the president's desk in the Oval Office in order to prevent him from doing stupid things. And uh, one of the things... I do the same thing like when I'm babysitting... And you're basically a toddlers, you know. You got to hide all the sharpies and things, right. so they won't draw on the walls. Right. I think it's the same sort of idea. I think it is. I think it's the same principle in effect. And just this this uh, last week, uh, after the op-ed, there was the discussion of the tweet that President Trump wanted to send, where he was going to say that we're going to pull out all 28,000 of the support people in South Korea who are there to protect us from a North Korean attack. And he was talked out of that by people who said, if you do that, that is a signal to North Korea that we are going to do a preemptive strike. And so we were one tweet away from a huge military action. And when I read that, I thought, okay, does the president have his tweets okayed by anybody? Because so, there's so many stupid tweets that come out of the White House. Yeah, that seems weird. That wouldn't be okayed, but then other ones where he calls people ugly or said, like, you know, like those get okayed, like... Yeah, oh, well, this is okay. Well, they don't start World War Three, so I guess that's... I suppose. Pro- <laughs> they, they come close. But the Woodward book already set the stage for the idea of a dysfunctional White House where people are doing everything they can to be able to subvert the president who's been duly elected. And then out comes this anonymous op-ed. And my first reaction to it was, this is John Huntsman. Uh, John Huntsman Jr. Why, why would you think that? Because John Huntsman Jr., and, and this is, I have Huntsman issues, I think, is what my sisters told me. John Huntsman Jr. is uh, probably the most self-important person I have ever met in my entire Dad, life. You can't say that. Why can't I say that? That's just rude. Well, he... You John, don't know him. Well, I don't know him well, but I am acquainted with him. He, he knows who I am. I know who he is. Uh, he actually... I, I, in 2004, I was campaigning for Fred Lampropoulos, who was a candidate for governor against John Huntsman in the Republican primary. And John Huntsman pulled me aside and said, I hear your dad is going to endorse Fred Lampropoulos, and he better not. And I said, that's nonsense. He's not going to endorse Fred Lampropoulos. And we had a nice little conversation. But John Huntsman, the minute he was elected governor of Utah, he essentially left Utah. He didn't attend any functions. He didn't do anything. He turned it over to Gary Herbert, who was the lieutenant governor at the time. And when Gary Herbert took over for John Huntsman, when John Huntsman was appointed ambassador to China under Obama, there really was no transition because John Huntsman had long seen the Utah governorship as nothing more than a stepping stone to, to better things. And the tone of the letter was very John Huntsman Jr., the, the, the sort of hero worship of John McCain, the, the sanctimony, all of that. I read that. And that I th- is all very, like, that's, that's the way you read I didn't, because I didn't pick up on any, like, I don't know. 
It well, seems like you read into it with your bias, and so it's, it's look, confirmation bias. It well, seems. that's I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I, I dismissed John Huntsman only because John Huntsman is not in the inner circle of the Trump administration in any significant way. John Huntsman is the ambassador to Russia. He's not in the White House on a daily basis. But he's the ambassador to Russia now. He is. He was the ambassador. Speak Russian. I don't think so. He was a missionary to Taiwan, so he learned how to speak Chinese yeah. on his mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's very different from Russian. Well, I don't know that most ambassadors, American ambassadors to foreign countries, necessarily have to speak the I'm language. I'm sure it's a very good perk. Like, per, like you would have to. How would you not? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you don't. You don't. So you're saying you don't want to be point, appointed ambassador? To no, Russia? I guess if it doesn't matter, like sure, like appoint me to be ambassador of like, I don't know, what's a pretty place, Indonesia or Bali? Send me to like a. Do we have an ambassador to Bali? I don't know. Man, that would be fun. Well, typically ambassadors have been uh, rich donors who have donated money. And oh yeah, I'm out then. Okay. Dang it! All right, so. So well, I mean, John Huntsman's career goes back to um, the first Bush administration, and he wanted to be appoint, appointed ambassador to Singapore in his twenties as a very young man. And Jake Garn, who was the senator before Bob Bennett, uh, was refusing to vote for the Iraq for not the Iraq War for the first Gulf War in 1991 until George. H.W. Bush appointed John Huntsman Jr. to be ambassador to Singapore, a 20-something-year-old kid. That sounds, like, sketchy. Well, I see, don't know. okay, so, yeah, this John Huntsman Jr., if he listens to our podcast, then I don't think he does, but he probably won't appreciate the fact that I don't seem to think very highly of him. But this sounded very much like John Huntsman Jr. And uh, some people over at National Review put him forward as a candidate and John Huntsman Jr. joined a growing list of senior officials who deny that they were the writers of the op-ed. John Huntsman Jr.'s note was, when you're serving as the U.S. envoy in Moscow, you're an easy target on all sides. Anything sent out by me would have carried my name. An early political lesson I learned, never send an anonymous op-ed. I mean, that's nonsense. That's not an early political lesson he learned, is it? I learned that in kindergarten. Did you? That was one of our very first lessons. <laughs> right before finger painting, they said, kids, don't ever send an anonymous op-ed. And we all said, what does anonymous mean? Oh, there you go. Well, at least the lesson stuck with you. So Obviously, yes. So, so there are a number of questions that are raised by this. One is, what defines a senior Trump official? And the fact is that there are hundreds of people in the Trump administration that legally fit that description. And there are a lot of folks that are saying that they don't think that it's appropriate for the New York Times to have run this if this was not somebody who's sufficiently senior to qualify for that. And, and the New York Times has come under fire from people saying, okay, how, how did this happen and why did you publish this? without being able to vet it to the point where people are able to know what that means, a senior official. We'll talk about that when we get back. So, Abby, if you learned this op-ed had been written by um, just, I don't know, by an intern, 
Okay. By Monica Lewinsky. Okay. Would you be, well, Monica Lewinsky now has a higher profile than she did when she was an intern, obviously. But would you be upset at the New York Times for publishing something saying this is a senior administration official when it turns out it's anything but? Um. Yeah, I'd kind of be like, well, that wasn't true, but I wouldn't lose my mind over it or anything. I would be like... Well, when you hear it's a senior well, official, okay. so who are the names that come to mind? Who 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 would you consider to be a senior official in the Trump administration? Um, I don't know. The vice president, cabinet members. So both of them, uh, them, because there are many cabinet members, but both cabinet members and the vice president have been put forward as possible suspects. The vice president was the flurry of a lot of interest because of the word lodestar. What does that even mean? A lodestar is, I think, sort of the fixed point in the heavens that you, you know, tie your wagon to. The, you know, the lo- <laughs> I don't know, you can't tie your That's wagon. It's a weird word. It is a weird word, and it's a word that Mike Pence has used in a number of different speeches, in a number of different papers and things throughout his entire oh, career. Oh, shoot, it's confirmed then. So, yeah. Nobody so, says lodestar. So about five minutes into it, we thought, okay, it's, it's lodestar. Uh, Mike Pence has, of course, come out and and specifically disavowed that it's him. And I thought it could possibly be him because when, when Mike Pence was nominated to be vice president, I thought, oh, good, here we have a grown-up. Finally, someone who knows how to use the word lodestar <laughs> right. in office. Right. It's what we've all been waiting for. It's what we've all been waiting for. And I thought, okay, Mike Pence is the guy who's going to be able to put a check on Trump's worst impulses because Mike Pence had been a reliable conservative and a fairly middle-of-the-road governor uh, and, and you know, very boring. And I think boring is exactly what Trump needs to sort of offset the fact that he's just far too interesting in all the wrong ways. Well, Mike Pence has turned out to be this sort of saccharine sycophant that uh, – Makes, Interesting alliteration, isn't that, that? Isn't that good alliteration? He, he's Waylon Smithers without the charm. You know who Waylon Smithers is? The guy from Simpsons. The guy from Simpsons, yes, who's always sucking up to Mr. Burns. Okay, uh, he's actually in love with Mr. Burns. But he I has. He's charming. I've never once thought, oh, he's charming. No, I'm not saying he's charming. I'm saying Mike Pence has less charm than Waylon Smithers, and Waylon Smithers is not charming. Waylon Smithers lives to serve Mr. Burns and would never cross Mr. Burns in a million years. Mike Pence, when Donald Trump picks up a water bottle that's on the table, Mike Pence makes sure that he picks up his water bottle right afterwards. There's a video on YouTube showing them picking up their water bottles in succession in a way that makes it clear. Well, that is insane proof. That's all we really need is the water bottle videos. Well, it's insane proof that Mike Pence... Mike Pence is under... Um control then like mind control it's confirmed it is confirmed because nobody just drinks water that's crazy (laughs) no one just picks up a water bottle well it's there there have been so many opportunities for mike pence to sort of stand up and be um, a you know a grown-up when donald trump has a temper tantrum and instead mike pence has decided to be a prop mike pence was sent to an nfl football game by donald trump so he could deliberately stand up and walk out when colin kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem. And I thought, what kind of person allows himself to sort of be used in that way? Someone who wants free football tickets. But he didn't even get to stay and watch the game. He, he, had, he I'm sure he snuck back in. Oh, you can't he s- had a disguise. <laughs> oh, yeah, he put on a fake mustache? Yeah. 
the Secret Service doesn't uh, take kindly to that sort of thing. Well, so Mike Pence denied that he did it. And then another name that surfaced was Larry Kudlow, who's an economic advisor to Trump. Have you ever heard of Larry Kudlow? No. Larry Kudlow, uh, the reason why he seemed plausible, there were other phrases that were used in the op-ed, like first principles and steady state and other things that uh, are phrases that Larry Kudlow has used. And the other thing that makes Larry Kudlow a, a likely suspect is that Larry Kudlow is a writer. Larry Kudlow had long been a senior editor at National Review. Larry Kudlow had been a contributor on cable news, and he knows how to write an op-ed. And so a lot of people were pointing to him as a possible suspect. But his response, as I pull it up here, is he said, uh, would I work against him? That's just crazy. That is just nuts, of course. I have nothing to do with this. Wink, wink. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, UN Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley has denied writing the op-ed. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. Who, who would be like, yeah, I wrote it, though? Like, obviously, I, I feel like if they're going to pu- publish it anonymously, then, of course, they're going to deny it. Or else they would just say it was them in the first place, wouldn't We're, they? Right. They probably would. I, I feel like the person who actually wrote it is would probably deny it when asked. Well, and see, that's why my money's still on John Huntsman. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, but anyway, but going through the, the whole list of people, there there's even been speculation that Melania wrote it. <laughs> And, uh, and Melania does not know what lodestar means. Come on. <laughs> well, so then you get to the idea, okay, um, th- then you start saying, what if it's somebody who is trying to discredit anti-Trumpers? I mean, then you start going down the rabbit hole. Uh, the sheriff up in Weber County is a Facebook friend of mine, and he insists the whole thing is fiction, that it was all made up. The New mm. York Times is just making this up to make Trump look ridiculous. And that there is and no so such the person. conspiracies begin. Well, there is a conspiracy. A conspiracy requires secrecy, and there is secrecy about who this is. So there's clearly some kind of a conspiracy. I don't know that there's a conspiracy that's illegal. I mean, Trump is now talking about doing things, and Kellyanne Conway, who was also denied writing the op-ed, insists that crimes need to be investigated. And we'll talk about that when we get back. So Kellyanne Conway, who has denied writing the op-ed, also insists that the op-ed was illegal. And that, uh, she says, I don't know that. And I don't, well, Jake Tapper on uh, CNN said, Does, doesn't appear that anything illegal had been done. And Kellyanne Conway said, I don't know that. And I don't think you know that. And Jake Tapper pushed back and said, what would be illegal? And Conway said, I have no idea. Let's not look at the four corners of the op-ed or the four corners of someone's book to say this is everything we know. That's the entire point. I don't know what point that is. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that was very confusing. So she's saying we need to investigate the crimes that could have been committed. Uh, I don't think there's a crime committed. There's nothing. Because what do they actually say? Like, I don't, I don't, I I read it once when it first came out. Like, do they say, I'm just trying to be a nuisance? Like... No. Well, what they say is, and so if you, if you actually read the text of the op-ed, it says that they're very happy, they want the administration to succeed, 
But they also think that uh, President Trump, I'm going to pull up the actual words here of what he said, that President Trump is, um, uh, many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. So they're like sabotaging him? I don't understand. Uh, Well, they're saying President Trump's impulses are generally anti-trade and anti-democratic says, don't get me wrong, there are bright spots that the near-ceaseless negative coverage of the administration fails to capture. Effective deregulation, historic tax reform, a more robust military, and more. But these successes have come despite, not because of, the president's leadership style, which is impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective. And the, so you go through this, they say this is a two-track presidency, and so on one track, President Trump is trying to suck up to dictators. But on the other track, the people in his administration are trying to maintain alliances and they're trying to prop up NATO and make sure. And they, he says, this isn't the work of the so-called deep state. It's the work of the steady state. And uh, he says there were early whispers within the cabinet of invoking the 25th Amendment, which would start a complex process for removing the president. And that's never happened before. Are you familiar with the 25th Amendment? Um, I think it starts a complex process of removing the president. <laughs> right. Well, okay, so the best movie with the 25th Amendment in it is Air Force One with Harrison Ford. I have never seen that. Have you never seen that? No. That is a great movie. So Russian terrorists take over Air Force One, and and the president of the United States hides in the car, which is Harrison Ford. He hides in the cargo bay. And uh, as everybody, well, at the beginning of the thing, he's- Harrison Ford is a coward? No, no, no. At the beginning of the thing, they try to shoo him out and and they have an escape pod for the president. And he doesn't go into the escape pod. Of course not. He's Harrison Ford. He's Harrison Ford. He hides in the cargo bay with a machine gun and he guns down some of the terrorists and then he eventually. Oh, man, I love him. I know it's it's a great movie, but at one point they compromise him. At one point they threaten to kill his daughter if he doesn't release some Russian terrorists that are in American custody, and so he makes a call to do that. And the cabinet on the ground gathers with a copy of the Constitution, and to determine whether or not they're going to relieve him of his duties under the Twenty Fifth Amendment. And the Twenty Fifth Amendment was designed. For, for Air Force One. For Air Force One. And then one. we all loved that movie so much, we decided to make it real life. Well, uh, I don't think that Donald Trump, if Air Force One were hijacked, would really... He did say that he would run into a school shooting unarmed if he had to. He's so brave. He's so brave. But the 25th Amendment is designed to deal with all of the different ways that the president might not be able to discharge his duty. Section 1 just says, in the case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Okay. I don't think Donald Trump's going to resign. He may be removed from office, but he he doesn't look like he's in poor health or is going to die anytime soon. Section 2, whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Do you remember the last time that happened? It's the only time that happened. Oh, I should know this. Oh, no. I don't know. That was Spiro Agnew. Yeah. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Nobody remembers Spiro Agnew. No, we learned about him in my AP history class, and I just remember thinking his name was so weird. 
what, Spiro? Yeah. You're not a big fan of the Spiro? No, it sounds like a supervillain name. (laughs) He was a bit of a supervillain. He had taken bribes when he was governor of Maryland, and he was very clearly corrupt, and he resigned, and he was replaced by Gerald Ford. Uh, Gerald Ford, interestingly, being the only president... Who was never elected. Who was never elected. At all. At all. He was appointed to the vice presidency. He assumed the presidency when Nixon resigned, and he was never elected president. Uh, Okay, so number three... Section 3 of the 25th Amendment says, whenever the president transmit to the, transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. That's happened a couple of times when the president has gone in for surgery. So if a president is going in and he's going under anesthesia and he's not going to be conscious. He's like, wait, guys, don't don't put me under yet. I have to write out a letter that says I'm going to be unconscious for a while. It doesn't even say letter. It says he just has to transmit it. It says written. Whenever the president transmits his written declaration. You're yeah. right. You're right. Okay. But I wonder I'm, if a text will count. I wonder if a text will count. Like anyone's ever gotten a text and they're like, hey, man, I'm getting... I'm getting a nose job. You gotta, you gotta take over for a while. And they're like, check. oh, it's it's on my phone, so technically it's written. That's right. Well, so section four is the one that would come into account. It's the one they pulled up in Air Force One. Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. And so most people interpret that. That's never happened, but most people interpret that as the presidential cabinet. So if a majority of the cabinet and the vice president agree that the president is unable to discharge his duties, they can relieve him of that responsibility. So is that another like sign that the person who wrote this op-ed is a member of the cabinet since he talks about invoking it? Uh, people are, well, the thing is the whispers of the 25th Amendment. I mean, you don't need whispers. People are screaming about it. Elizabeth Warren has been going around saying we need to invoke the 25th Amendment right now. Uh, so, yeah, you would think that a cabinet member would be talking about that. But that's not necessarily anything that, that uh, absolutely points to that being a member of the cabinet. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. But it would be interesting because Vice President Pence would have to be in on that. And you go through the cabinet and you see people who are hard- Can you imagine Donald's Twitter if that ever happened? <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Well, what's, what's hard for me to imagine is what ex-President Trump is going to be like. Because I think ex-President Trump is going to be a huge pariah. Uh, Right now, there is a core of people who follow him and agree with him and love everything he does. But there are also a a huge block of Republicans who are going along with him because they like uh, his Supreme Court nominations. And they like a lot of the things that he's done, but they still can't stand him. And I think as soon as Trump is gone, those people are going to be... They're going to abandon him when he no longer has any power. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back. You know, Abby, speaking of ex-presidents, Barack Obama is back in the news. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, this up until 
really up until Obama, uh, the unspoken rule was that a former president does not comment on the activities of his immediate predecessor, his immediate successor. That's yeah, the word yeah, I'm yeah. For, right. And George W. Bush didn't say anything at all about Barack Obama. He was busy painting and stuff. He, he was busy painting. His paintings are actually pretty good. Yeah, totally. Uh, you don't you don't think so. that's a sarcastic voice? You aren't impressed with your former not, president's artistic not talent. really. No, uh, but W didn't say anything about Obama. Uh, Clinton really didn't say much of anything about W. And uh, it goes back. It, that was just the unspoken rule, and those rules of decorum have just kind of vanished. And I think Obama was trying to do that, but he felt very strongly that uh, the excesses of the Bush administration required him, not Bush, of the Trump administration required him to sort of jump back into the fray. Mm -hmm. And my favorite line in his speech was, how hard is it to say Nazis are bad? You know, you have Donald Trump when you had all that stuff going on in Charleston. Charlottesville. Charlottesville, sorry. Charlottesville, Virginia, not Charleston, North Carolina, South Carolina. I'm out of control. I'm out of control. Uh, but uh, you had Trump saying that you had good people on both sides. Yeah, that was a that was a gaffe on his part. That was that was, that was not great. That was not great. But he's never apologized for it. He's he's never walked it back. And so you can see the reason why people who are in this administration would want to do everything they can to sort of temper those worst influences and yet still maintain the kinds of successes that they think that they're having. I don't think they're having as many successes as they claim. Although Donald Trump did say in his recorded phone conversation with Bob Woodward that the real news story is that there has never been a better president than him. That he can tell you. Hmm. So... That's well, you heard it here for, here first, folks. Now you heard it here second. Bob Woodward heard it here first. Okay, but here's here's my question: What would happen if the person who wrote the op-ed like got exposed? You know, like would he get fired? Like would that be allowed? Like what would what would happen to them? Well, depends on who they I are. Said, I think I said he, he or she. Actually, the New York Times referenced him as a he. Oh, shoot. But then they walked it back and said, we were just using a pronoun that was a throwaway pronoun. Don't read anything into that. Uh, If it's Mike Pence, though, if he's the he, uh, there's nothing Trump can do. Trump can't fire the vice president. The vice president has to resign. Really? You can't fire the vice president? No. The vice president is duly elected. If you could fire the vice president, then... um, But what if they did something really bad? What if they killed a kitten on live, live TV? Well, uh, the the precedent for that, not the killing of the kitten, but Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was Thomas Jefferson's vice president, and, and Thomas Jefferson hated him, wanted to get rid of him. And then after Aaron Burr, Burr killed Alexander Hamilton, uh, there was a huge move to say, we don't want to have a murderer as our vice president. Thank no, you he, wasn't a vice pres- he wasn't a vice president then. Aaron Burr was, yeah. Nuh-uh. No. Yeah. No. All right. That was later. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Well, okay, you're going to Google that? Well, yeah. All right, so whether or not Aaron Burr is vice president is, is... Well, he was vice president, but I don't think he killed him while in office. Well, it, oh, no, you're right. In the last full year of his single term as vice president. Oh, there you go. Dang and, it. And you couldn't fire him. And it used to be that the vice president uh, was the runner-up. Yeah. And so... You know, Hillary Clinton would be vice president under those rules. That would be wild. Can you imagine what that would be like? Man. So 
So if it's Mike Pence, he can't be fired. Uh, if it's John Huntsman or you, if it's Larry Kudlow. Do you think Do you think if it like he would try, he, like, he'd probably lose his mind at whoever it was, I bet. Like, well, well, if it's anybody else, they would be fired. Unless it's Melania. I don't know how that would work. But if it's anybody else, yes, they get fired. And, and the, then he could say his iconic apprentice line. He, and it would be full circle. And the, the universe would explode. <laughs> that's right. He should film it. Well, that's why I want it to be Melania, because I think that would be the re- reality TV show moment of all time. The president's wife. Oh, my gosh. Comes out. This except, is where we've come to. This is where we have come to. Yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. Uh, we, I think we're going to find out sooner rather than later. I don't think this is the kind of secret that can. Uh, Rand Paul is even talking about administering polygraph tests to everybody in the Oval Office, which I think would be a complete and utter waste of time. But that's another <laughs> That's another issue altogether. No, I think we're going to find out. Eventually, uh, as William Shakespeare used to say, truth is the daughter of time. So it's kind of fun to speculate about this, but eventually we're going to find Who's out. Who's the father? Oh, father time? I don't know. That's a very good question. kind of reminds me of Mean Girls when they have the burn book, you know, and nobody knows who wrote it at first. And about everything, everyone thinks that Katie wrote it, but actually Regina wrote it and... So this is the I, ultimate burn I don't book. know. I see a lot of parallels between that movie and what we're going through today. <laughs> As do I. So I, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, those of you listening on the radio, be sure to subscribe to our pod- podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can also go to the KSL Podcast Center and download any former episodes of Dinner Table Politics there. Leave us a review and tell me what your favorite undersea animal is. In your review. Because I'd like to know. (laughs) That would be nice. So uh, this is Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. We'll see you next week on Dinner Table Politics. Unless the simulation glitches too much by then. We'll see.